coming in in the bottom of the ninth who has a series of things that he does to prepare himself to pitch in the game. I do similar things before I I preach each week. I will open up my Bible and look at the photograph of John Rogers, the first uh, Puritan martyr uh, who burned at the stake for under the the tyranny of Bloody Mary. And I always think it, it could be worse than it is. And then I turn to the next page and I read a quote from Stephen Lawson that says, Now is the time for the strong, strongest men to preach the strongest message in the context of the strongest ministry. This morning I am reminded about the, the very important responsibility and the very important privilege that I have in uh, proclaiming the word of God to you on a weekly basis. And want to... Um, say how how honored I am this morning uh, to have that privilege. I want to thank you for that privilege of doing that on a weekly basis and also throughout the the week. Um, I love serving you. I love preaching the word of God, and we're so, so pleased uh, to be here at Christ Fellowship. <laughs> love you too, Edith. I love you too. And by the way, it is so great to see the college students back. Is it not? Yeah. We have, uh, we have missed you all so very much, and we're excited to hear about the, the stories of God's grace and how he has been working in your lives. The title of the message this morning is The Reality of Heaven, Part 2. And I want to have you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 11. I will not be expositing that passage, but will use it as somewhat of a a launching point in this topical study as we make our, our final round at this very important topic of heaven. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, it's been a, a great journey, and we've barely touched the the top of the iceberg as we learn about our heavenly home. Uh, I pray, God, that as we've studied over the last several weeks, that our our hearts have uh, grown weary, uh, that our hearts have have grown uh, really longed for our heavenly home. Simply put, God, I pray that we want to go to heaven even more than we did a few weeks ago. And so we look forward to what you have for us on this day. We ask that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would apply the truth of the Word of God to our hearts, that uh, we would receive it with great eagerness, that we would receive it with great joy. So we look forward to this time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It was a few nights ago, a, a friend of mine was asking me, uh, very sincerely, Pastor, do you, do you have an idea of where we're going to go with the sermons in the next few weeks? And and I, I think I kind of scared him a little bit when I said, well, yeah, I do. Um, and after I shared that with him and saw the look on his face and the look on his wife's face, I got to thinking, well, maybe that will be helpful to share with the rest of the congregation. I have no idea where we're going. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you should see him now. So uh, next week we will uh, come with a special Christmas message. The following week... Um, I will preach a standalone message, and I'm going to leave that topic a surprise for you. But it's a, a sermon that I completed last night, late in the evening, that I, I wish I could just preach right now. I'm so excited about it, and I hope it serves you well and encourages you. The first Sunday in January, we'll begin a study in a book that my suspicion would be very few of you have studied in great detail, and that would be the book of Jude. Not Hey Jude, but the book of Jude, not the song, the book. And then after we finish Jude, we'll go to another book that is a a relatively unknown book, but would probably be my favorite minor prophet. We're going to study the book of Habakkuk together. And then when we finish uh, Habakkuk, Leona... We're going to the book of Romans. And Leona has been, I don't know how many times Leona has said, when are we going through Romans? And so it's coming. And I cannot wait. Well, today we conclude this study on the reality of heaven. Now, the Bible, of course, teaches us to find rest in this world. We're to find rest in this world. Look at Matthew chapter 11, the words of Jesus beginning in verse 28. 
These are very, very encouraging words. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It was Gary Habermas who once said, our rest begins here on earth. It ends in heaven. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan writer, said this. He said, rest is the, the end and the perfection of heaven. The saint's rest is the most happy estate of a Christian, having obtained the end of his course, or it is the perfect, endless fruition of God by the perfected saints according to the measure of their capacity to which their souls arrive at death, and both soul and body most fully after the resurrection and the final judgment. That is a mouthful. But what our friend Richard Baxter helps us to understand is that one day we will, in a final sense, rest. Are you looking forward to that day? Amen. I mean, are you just, is anyone tired? You're, you're weary, you're lonely, you're discouraged, and you say, I, I'm just looking forward to going to be in heaven. Well, the subject of heaven, I think, as you have already gathered, is really a never-ending topic. It's, it's one that will endure forever. But as I've already indicated, we must bring our study to a close for now. And so I want to conclude our study by looking at, at three specific elements, three specific components of our heavenly rest as a, a continuation of our study last week. And so that will be number three in our study. And that is this, that heaven, our heavenly home, will be bursting with joy. Our heavenly home is going to be bursting with joy. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Heavenly joy, you see, begins at the moment of salvation. And I will make reference to, to those in the sanctuary this morning who are not yet Christians. And I want to begin by making a, a reference um, to non-believers at this point and also have you turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. When I say that heaven will be bursting with joy, if, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian... You, you're, you're living your life and, and you smile like everyone else in the world and you carry about your activities like everyone else in the world and you say you experience joy. But if you are not a Christian, you, 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 you have not even begun to experience joy. I remember John Piper in referring to Madonna's hedonism. Some of you have no idea who Madonna is. Donna is a self-proclaimed hedonist. And I remember Dr. Piper referring to Madonna, and it was quite shocking when he said, she's not nearly hedonistic enough. And what he meant was that Madonna needs to find her joy and her delight and her satisfaction in Jesus, not in the things of the world. And so if you're not a believer, if you're not a believer... You, you have not even begun to discover what true joy is like. Here we see this. Heaven will be bursting with joy, and heavenly joy begins at the moment of salvation. John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. He, in essence, defines eternal life for, for years as a child. If someone would have asked me, and many of you will be in this situation as well, if someone would have asked me, define eternal life, I would have said, go to heaven. And you know that is an incorrect answer. It is an incorrect answer because heaven, as wonderful as heaven is, and we've been exploring the wonders and the glories of heaven, as beautiful and as wondrous and as glorious as heaven is, heaven is a, is a fringe benefit. 
Heaven is a fringe benefit. Jesus indicates as much in verse 3. He says, this is the definition of eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing the great God of the universe. You remember the great question of the Protestant Reformation. How can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? The Roman Catholic Church for 1,600 years had taught this. And they continue to teach this. You are saved on the basis of faith plus what you do. And Martin Luther came along and, and, and as he rediscovered the gospel of grace, he learned this in Romans chapter 1, that the just shall live by faith. It's where we get the, the, the cry, sola fide, faith alone. The just shall live by faith and faith alone. And so this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A British theologian by the name of Peter Toon says eternal life is presented as a quality and depth of life given by God to believers in this age in order that they might genuinely know Him in this age and more, more profoundly and satisfyingly in the age to come. And we've, we've learned that in previous studies, that we will grow in our knowledge of God. We will grow in our depth of understanding of who He is, and that knowledge will never come to an end. It will grow and grow and grow unto all eternity. Peter Toome continues. He says, Eternal life, a present possession will also be a future reality and will include being with Jesus forever and seeing the glory of God in Him. And so knowing God is eternal life. But I also want you to see if you would flip back one page or so in the Gospel of John to John chapter 15. We not only recognize that knowing God is eternal life, but we recognize this, that obeying God... Obeying God yields joy. And before we look at John chapter 15, verse 11, may I suggest, and better put, may I say it dogmatically, that if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that obedience is a requirement. Do you know there are those in the Christian church, and there are even formal organizations who say that to suggest that repentance is necessary to become a Christian, to suggest that fruit is a necessary result of justifying grace, that is to add a false addition to the gospel of grace. You know what we call that proposition in theology? That's called heresy. That's called false teaching. Jesus says this. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Go up to verse 8. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And so you remember what, what, what Rome has taught over the years that you are... You receive right standing with God on the basis of faith plus what you do. The Protestant reformers came along and said, no, no, no. You're saved by faith alone. But here's the critical point that you can't miss. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Did you hear that? You're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. That is to say, if you have received justifying grace, if you have right relationship with the God of the universe by faith and faith alone, what will happen? What is guaranteed to happen? Good works, fruit, all to the glory of God. That is a guarantee. And so we see that obeying God yields joy. Joy that is complete. That word comes from a Greek word that means goal. It is complete joy, not lacking anything. You look around the landscape of America right now. Would you agree with me that many people have no idea what joy is? They have no idea what joy is, yet they're looking for joy. They're searching for joy. So what do they do? They buy a nice car. 
Saw an ad for a car just yesterday that said $3,000 off a car. What an amazing deal. I thought, it's $60,000. That's like nothing. And so we, we buy a car and we think that's going to bring us happiness. And actually, you know, it's really honest. It really does bring happiness for about three weeks. Have you experienced that one? Or you buy a new home or you buy a new toy or you buy a new computer or you get a new job or you get a new hobby or you get a new, you fill in the blank. And the world is looking for happiness and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Heavenly joy begins at the moment of salvation. But I also want you to see that heaven consummates the work that God began at salvation and also promised to complete. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This great, great truth that Paul proclaims in verse 6. And he says, and I am sure of this. I'm going to stop there and make a statement. We live in a culture, and this is all due to to postmodernism. We live in a culture where if you are certain about anything, you are condemned. Have you experienced this? Where if if, if you're certain about anything, most notably your salvation... If you're certain about the, rela- the reliability, the authenticity, the veracity of Scripture, you are viewed with suspicion. And even greater than that, you are viewed with disdain. You are called arrogant. You are called a know-it-all. But listen to what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I am sure of this. He's certain about something. That he who began a good work in you, that is God the Father, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I've, asked, I've been asked from time to time, and it's generally from young people. Will heaven be boring? And I think we've explored some answers to that question. And we have learned that heaven will be anything but boring. God is a God of infinity. We will never come to an end of exploring him. He is new every day, so says Peter Kraft. Our need for security, our need for significance, our need for love and hope will all be found in the heavenly realm. Look look briefly at Psalm chapter 16. And we see this from the pen of King David. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, he says this. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. There it is again. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, forever and ever and ever. Looking for joy. Joy is found in this relationship with the God of the universe through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm chapter 36, verse 8, the psalmist continues in this line of thinking. He says, they, they feast on the abundance of your house. Can you remember the last time you went to a buffet? My, my favorite buffet is the seafood buffet. When my family goes to a seafood buffet, I, I wish you could see Nathan and Jereen. They go to the crab table. I mean, they go to the crab table, and <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for this. <laughs> Nathan is so good when he, he's, he's very precise, but you, <laughs> my wife and... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like a bulldog with a bone. Ah, I'm sorry. I'm going to get in big trouble. But it's crazy, right? But I'm not any better because when my wife and my son go, they go to the crab table. I head for, I head for the clams, and I go for the clams. And I just fill up the bowl of clams, and and I'm equally embarrassing you know i'm just going for those clams right isn't that what it means to feast by definition to feast is to smile like you're all doing right now it's so good to see you smiling and laughing it's to enjoy yourself it's to be full that's what it means to feast they feast on the abundance of your house 
And you give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. This fountain of life. I I love what Jonathan Edwards says. There is no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, that is weird. Think about that. Do, do, Do you agree? That's weird. There's no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. And then you start to think about it. Next time you see a fountain, just let it bother you. Well, you, you watch the fountain, and what does it do? I just want to make sure you're with me. It overflows. It has no deficiency that a fountain should overflow. And it's like the only thing that stops it if the maintenance guy unplugs the thing, right? And so it overflows over and over. For with you is the fountain of, of life. In your light do we see light. Jonathan Edwards says this will be the wedding day between Christ and the church. And this wedding day will last forever. The feast, the pomp, the entertainments, the holy mirth, the joys of the wedding will be continued to all eternity. Have you ever been to a wedding where... You were just enjoying yourself and you were watching the bride and the groom dance. Of course, it's not a Baptist wedding, but you were watching the, the bride and the groom dance. And, and, and you're watching everyone enjoy the food and you're sitting with your loved one. And you're thinking to yourself, this is incredible. And you're, you're enjoying yourself. And if, it, if the, the wedding feast doesn't grab you, you think of, uh, of the moment in your life where you enjoy yourself. And you wish it could last forever and ever and ever. Insert heaven. That's just a a flavor of what it's going to be like to spend all eternity in heaven. This heavenly realm will be bursting with joy. But there's something else we need to explore. And I want to have you turn to 1 John chapter 3. And I hate to admit that we will not be able to spend an awful lot of time on this because it is a a bit of a a theological dilemma, but it is also a great delight. And that is this. Number four, we will see God face to face. Some have referred to this as the, the beatific vision. The beatific vision. And so let me define it for you what theologians refer to as the visio Dei. In 1 John chapter 3, we read, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And I think most of you know that I'm a massive fan of the ESV. And I used the NIV for the first probably 25 years of my Christian journey. I love the NIV at this point. See what kind of love that God has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Wayne Grudem helps us here. He says, and although what we see will not be an exhaustive vision of God, we need to stop there. It won't be exhaustive because of this. It will be, as Grudem says, a completely true and clear vision of God. When we realize that God is the perfection of all that we long for or desire, that he is the summation of everything beautiful or desirable, then we realize that the greatest joy of the life to come will be this. We shall see him face to face. What is the effect of the beatific vision? And from time to time, I will just go to my hero, Jonathan Edwards, And usually this happens when I run out of steam or run out of gas or I have no idea what to do at this point. What is the effect of the beatific vision? I'm just going to borrow right from Edwards. He gives us three very important items. Number one, he says, we will see everything in God that tends to excite and inflame love. If you wonder what that means or if you can if you can wrap your mind around it, think about this. Think about Moses on Mount Sinai. 
You remember Moses went and received the law? What he looked like when he came off the mountain? Yeah, that's you and I. We will see everything in God that tends to excite and inflame love. Edward says, secondly, we shall see everything in God that gratifies love, for love desires the possession of its object. That's something we're thinking about. But he says, thirdly, the effect of the vision, the beatific vision, is we shall commune with God. We shall We shall be seated at the banqueting table of God, and we shall, as Psalm 36 indicates, feast with God for all eternity. Finally, look at the essence of the vision. The essence of the vision. Edwards helps us. He says, it is no sight of anything with the bodily eyes, but it is an intellectual view. The beatific vision of God is not... A sight with the eyes of the body, but with the eyes of the soul. There is no such thing as seeing God properly with the bodily eyes. Why? Because he is someone. He's spirit. He's spirit. So this is of great help. This will not be seeing God properly with the body of the eyes, bodily eyes, because he is spirit. One of his attributes. That is God is invisible. We shall see him intellectually, Thomas Watson says, with the eyes of the mind. Now you know why I'm regretting moving forward and not wrestling more with this. It's a weighty, profound theological truth and reality. But time beckons us to look at the final point. There's a fifth point that we need to see, and that is that we shall worship God for all Eternity. John Piper says that worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. May I say that at Christ Fellowship, we have a long way to go in understanding this. Let me read it again. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. If we're gladly reflecting the radiance of his worth... This is not how we worship. Are you with me? How do we worship? We're happy. We're feasting. We're joyful. Jason and Tanya, do I even need to say it? (laughs) Jason and Tanya and Jareen and I talked about this the other day. I envision Christ Fellowship in the days ahead as, man, I'm going to get in trouble. A hand-raising church. Do you know that in some church traditions, not only does it not happen, it it is frowned upon. It is discouraged. And that's always perplexed me because the scriptures speak about lifting holy, holy hands. And so what does that what does that suggest when we lift our holy hands of worship and we're feasting on God and we're smiling and we're not doing. What does that suggest? It suggests that we are satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus we begin to see the, the greatness of his worth. We begin to, to treasure the greatness of his worth. And guess what happens when we begin to do that? And I believe we have, we have a long ways to go. And by God's grace, he's going to take us there. And it's not going to be through manipulation. And it's not going to be through, through Jason or the worship team telling you this is what you need to do. It's going to happen as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be spontaneous. It's going to be like revival. It's going to be like reformation. And when that happens, the community will wonder what in the world is going on at that Baptist church. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It's like a friend of mine came to see me. I may have shared this story before. I was teaching a class on the ministry of the Holy Spirit at a Baptist church. This guy came in the door. He didn't knock or anything. He came banging in. I'd never seen him in my life. And he said, I'm so-and-so. I used to attend here, and now I go to the charismatic church, and I have one question for you. What's going on around here? I said, I I thought he was going to pull out a gun or something. And I said, sir, what do you mean, and who are you? He said, well, I used to attend here, 
Now I go to the charismatic church. And he says, when I attended here, this church, I don't think they believed in the Holy Spirit. I said, well, they do now. I'm not quite sure why you would say that, but we, we love the Holy Spirit. We cherish the Holy Spirit. We revere the Holy Spirit. Why? Because as we learned in Ironman yesterday morning, the Holy Spirit possesses all of the attributes of God. Think about any attribute you choose. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, infinity, holiness, love, mercy, truth. The Holy Spirit possesses all the attributes of God along with God the Son and God the Father. And so we will worship God for all eternity. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of His worth. I'm just kind of curious. Would it be possible that there are, are any within our church family who are thinking to themselves, I'm not going there, Pastor. I'm not doing it. We'll see. I see the glass is half full. And I see we're all on this bus together and we're, we're headed in the right direction. We're going north, not south, right? We're heading to the celestial city and we're going to reflect the greatness of his worth. Well, there are three elements of worship that I want to unpack for you briefly. And these three elements of worship are expressed by some very specific Greek words that I want to show you in Scripture. And while these are in your notes, it's not necessary to memorize or put on your refrigerator, And although that would be pretty cool, I think. The first is this. It's the Greek word proskuneo. Proskuneo. And the word means this. It means to kneel. It means to kneel. It means to, to do homage in order to express respect or to make supplication for God. I want to show you a few place, places where proskuneo appears. The first is in John chapter 4. And you can almost, while you're turning, imagine where the word appears if you're thinking carefully about the story of the Lord Jesus Christ and his interaction with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Look at John 4, 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Proskuneo. To, to bend the knee, to do homage, to express respect or honor or to make supplication to God. Verse 24. God is Spirit. Did you know that the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith, that there was a, a man who oversaw a funeral, a Mormon funeral, who stood up and said in front of, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that God has flesh and bones just like you and I. Now, what do we do when we're, when we're faced with... a a decision as to whether or not to believe that, we go to the Word of God. Look at verse 24. God is... It's not flesh and bones, is it? He is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Go over to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Yet another 
way that we see proskuneo play itself out in sacred scripture. Revelation chapter 22, verse 8. At the end of the book, the Apostle John says, I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, and I heard and I saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant. That is to say, don't worship an angel. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of the book. Worship God. Pros kuneo God. Bend the knee to God. Pay homage to God. There's a second word I want you to see. It's the word sebontai. Sebontai. It's a word that could be translated as, as worship. It's also translated as to revere or to have a, a feeling of awe or devotion. It's to have a feeling of our devotion. Look over at Acts chapter 16. And I'm, I'm really regretting this right now as we look at Acts 16 verse 14. I'm regretting this because I have a photograph of me and my friend Lydia. And I don't say this irreverently, but I'm certain Lydia was about 120 years old. This is a lady I met in the Republic of Belarus in, in a village far, far away from Minsk. And I ended up on a bus with a group of Christians from a church. And I sat next to Lydia. And I remember saying to Lydia, man, she hardly had, man, she was old. And I asked Lydia, I said, I said, Lydia, there's a woman in the New Testament who was a seller of purple linen. Are you a seller of purple linen? And she laughed. No, not a no, no, knit, knit in Russian. And we just, we became friends. And I wish I had the photograph to show you because she was a, a dear, dear woman. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a a worshiper, a sebontai of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. My prayer is that there's someone here this morning who does not know God. And, and perhaps today would be the day when, when God opens your heart to the truth of his word. Perhaps you've gone to church for, for many years, maybe even your whole life, and you've never had an experience where you truly worshipped God like Lydia, the seller of purple goods. My prayer is that God would open someone's heart this morning. In Acts chapter 18, verse 7, we see the word once again. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. That's Sebantai. That is a, a person who reveres God, who worships God, who has a feeling of deep awe and respect. There's a third and final word I want you to see. Latreontes. It's a big word, but I think you'll be encouraged by this because I talk to people from time to time and they say, Pastor, I don't have a real strong singing voice. And generally what I, I sense in that is that if you don't have a real strong singing voice, you feel like you're not much of a worshiper. And may I say that nothing could be further from the truth. And by the way, it, it is a sheer delight for me to hear someone belting out praise to God that's off key, loud. I love that. Have you ever heard that? Oh, man, they're singing the doxology, and you're like, oh, wow, you didn't hit one correct note. It was wonderful. Why? Because they're not like this. They're like this, feasting on God. And who cares if the notes aren't right? So if you're here and, and you say you don't have much of a singing voice, this word is for you, la treontes. This is the element of divine service. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4. And I think... All the non-singers are going to like this a great deal. But it also applies to those of you who have tremendous singing voices. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. 
This is the scene of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to the end of the story and Jesus says to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall latrate on Tess, the Lord your God. That may be translated as worship or also as serve in your passage. Look over at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. And once again, to encourage the non-singing group that we have this morning. Paul says in Philippians 3, 3, For we are the circumcision who, uh, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. There's a final passage I want you to see and would encourage everyone to turn there. This may be the most important passage for this word. Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. If you're not convinced yet. Revelation seven fifteen. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And before you read any further, you ask yourself, what what do people generally do before the throne of God? Someone yell it out. Don't anyone say fall asleep. We don't fall asleep at the throne of God, do we? Edith, you're exactly right. We worship. But notice what the passage says. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. For those of you who... Don't have strong singing voices. To worship is also to serve. It's not mere notes that come from your mouth, but it is serving with your hand and serving with your feet and serving with your time as an act of worship to our triune God. Finally, we shall fulfill God's original purpose in creating us to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And that's exactly what Isaiah 43, 7 says. The reason God created Chad, the reason God created Chessa, the reason God created Bill, the reason God created Kayleen, the reason God created every person is to glorify Him. That's the reason. I was born so that I might glorify God. You were born so that you might glorify God. Now imagine coming face to face with the majestic God of the universe, the one who is holy, 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 the one who is completely just. We will stand before the true and the faithful God who has and will continue to shower his grace and his mercy upon us. Revelation fourteen seven. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Psalm chapter 99. Aurelius Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest churchmen who ever lived, one of the greatest theologians to ever live, wrote an autobiography that he entitled The Confessions. If you have never read The Confessions, may I encourage you? I think, and I did not check, I think you can get a copy for 99 cents and maybe even free on Amazon, on Kindle. May I encourage you to read the autobiography of this former pagan, of this former sexual sinner, of this man who had a a living girlfriend, this man who had a a mistress, this man who was in the garden one day and heard the little child say, Tololege, take up and read. And he read Romans chapter 13 that said, make no provision for the flesh. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and God regenerated him. We've heard that story many times. Listen to what Augustine says in the Confessions. He says, in heaven, that should make you lean in. And we'll talk about that next week. In heaven, we shall rest and we shall see. We shall see and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. But what shall be in the end shall never end. I hope there's someone... This morning who says to themselves, wow, that's deep. 
Behold, what shall be in the end shall never end. And so I want to ask this morning as we close, how does the reality of heaven affect the way that you live your Christian life on this day? Former Bishop of Liverpool, a hero of mine, J.C. Ryle, says, You must love the things of heaven before your death, or else you will never enter heaven when you die. That's a challenging citation. You must love the things of heaven before your death, or else you cannot enter heaven when you die. What could possibly cause a person to neglect loving the things of heaven? It's because they prioritize things on this earth. See, our future is bright indeed. Heaven will be brimming with hope. Heaven offers bountiful rewards. Heaven will be bursting with joy. We shall see God's face. We shall worship the majestic God of the universe for all eternity. Heaven obliterates the fear of death and it fills the heart with hope even in the face of terminal illness. Even in the face of loved ones who so many in our church family have lost over the last several weeks. And heaven promises safety and security in the presence of God. We shall finally rest in heaven. And as Augustine said, behold, what shall be in the end shall never end. Do you long for heaven? Do you long for your heavenly home? You must love the things of heaven before your death, Ryle says, or else you cannot enter heaven when you die. Jesus Christ put it this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also are your treasures on this earth are your treasures do your treasures consist of cars and stocks and investments and relationship and stuff where your treasure is there your heart will be also you remember the words of henry skugel it's one of my favorite quotations of all time he said the worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its delight. The worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its delight. Jesus says it like this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I want to say something that if the newspaper ever heard about it, or if a a TV station ever heard about it, or Everson ever heard about it, we would be mocked until our dying day. But this is the teaching of the word of God. Nothing impure will ever enter heaven. If you're here this morning and you're addicted to sin and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God tells you this. You will never enter heaven because there is no impurity in heaven. The only way to receive a pure heart is to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ, to have his righteousness transferred to your account and your sin transferred to his account. Today could be the first day of your experience of of receiving a foretaste of heaven. I want to close with these words from Jonathan Edwards that are deeply, deeply challenging. He says, how can you better apply your strength and use your means and spend your days than in traveling in the road that leads to the everlasting enjoyment of God, to his glorious presence, to the city of New Jerusalem, to the heavenly Mount Zion, where all your desires will be filled and there is no danger of ever losing your happiness. How could anyone choose anything less? How could anyone take any other path but to take the path that leads to the celestial city? Let's pray. What a joy it's been, God, to 
just get a glimpse of our heavenly home. And may you increase our desire to go there. May our longings increase. May our affections increase. May our love of this world decrease. And the love of this life and world grow strangely dim in the light of the glorious face of Jesus. Father, I pray this morning for, for someone who is not yet a Christian. For a person who perhaps thinks that coming to church is what earns favor in the sight of God. Or putting a few dollars in the plate is what merits favor in the eyes of God. Or doing good works. May that person recognize that all these things are like, like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. And so God, for someone who, who needs assurance of going to heaven, who, who needs to experience true and lasting joy for the first time, may you do a mighty work in someone's heart. May you do a mighty work in a whole group of people's hearts that they may turn from their sin and that they would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary who lived the life that we could never live, who fulfilled the law of God perfectly, who who died a, a brutal, horrible, painful, bloody death on the cross. It's on the cross that, that each one of us should have died. That we would cast all our hope and future exclusively on the, the Savior who went to the tomb and on the third day, God, you raised Jesus from the dead and he ascended into heaven. Now he is seated at the right hand of the father who rules and reigns and exercises his sovereign control over all things, including the minor details of our lives. So would you draw someone to yourself today, God? May we remember the words of J.C. Ryle, who said, if we don't long for the things of heaven now, we'll never go there. God, remind us that no impure thing, no impure person enters heaven. And the only way we become pure, the only way we become holy is to receive the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now as we come to your table, would you set our hearts aright? Would you remind us of these weighty, weighty realities before us and the elements and the, the bread and what the bread represents pointing to the body of Jesus and the cup as it reminds us of his precious blood that was shed for every person who would ever believe. May this be a special time of worship as we close our time in Jesus' name. Amen.